0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to have a chat about the longest reigns of sovereign monarchs from throughout history – now, we, of course, have already done history's shortest reigns, old listeners will remember, episode 132, get across it. Um, and now, a mere 150 episodes later, just three years down the track, we're here with the longest reigns as well. I actually remember um, at the time when I recorded the shortest reigns episode, I remember thinking, oh, I should also you know, do the longest reigns episode as well. That makes a lot of sense. Um but then I realized I couldn't be as definitive with the longest rain uh, longest rain episode as I wanted to be back then because at the time one of the longest rains was still ongoing. Now, it isn't anymore, hasn't been for about a year as we'll talk about, but uh There is, nonetheless, a very good reason that uh, it's taken me so long to get around to doing the Longest Rains episode. There's, uh, There's a good reason as to why I didn't do this episode earlier. One that I'm sure that you will understand and accept as a very valid justification for why this episode has taken me so long. I forgot. So... Anyway, today we'll be talking about the five longest reigns of sovereign monarchs. And first things first, you'll notice that I said sovereign monarchs for the second and then now the third time there. So what's going on with this term? Today, we're only going to be talking about sovereign monarchs as distinct from monarchs who ruled over dependent or constituent realms. So, for instance, the longest reigning monarch of all time, right, is Wenyama Sobhuza II of Swaziland, or today Eswatini. And he ruled for 82 years and 254 days. However, he ruled Swaziland at a point in its history when it was under the authority of the British Empire. So he wasn't fully and truly independent or autonomous. And there are lots of examples of monarchs like this, monarchs who ruled over their realms as part of the Holy Roman Empire. They were still under the authority of the Holy Roman Emperor himself, and as as a result, weren't sovereign, right? So today... We are just going to be sticking to monarchs who were sovereign, who were independent and autonomous. Um, and we'll also, I should note, be sticking to reigns that have historically verified dates because there are quite a number of uh very long reigns uh, from throughout history that aren't as well established aren't as definitively verified so sorry Pharaoh Pepi the second of Egypt your ninety four year reign has not been sufficiently verified by historians good effort though mate you 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 had a good innings uh but no today's episode will focus on independent sovereign monarchs that have historically verified dates attached to their reigns. And today's episode will take us all over the world and across a millennium and a half of history from ancient Maya city states to modern 21st century kingdoms. There have been some extremely long-lived monarchs that have ruled over the years. So let's get into it here. Here are the five verified longest reigns of history sovereign monarchs. Off we go. Let's kick things off. Going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the 27th of July, 615 CE, the date that Kinich Jarab Pakal I, often referred to as Pakal the Great, became the Acao of a Maya city-state called Palenque, uh, sometimes also known as La Cama. The ancient city of Palenque was uh, was located in southern modern-day Mexico, near the modern-day Mexican city of Palenque. What are the chances of that? But uh, ancient Palenque was a middle-sized city-state that dated back to the third century BCE and lasted over a thousand years before finally falling into decline across the eighth century CE. Palenque's history is uh, is rich and complex. It's filled with political intrigues, conflicts with neighboring city-states, and outpourings of all sorts of cultural expression. Everything from incredible architecture to rich and intricate jewelry. And across its thousand year history, the city of course had its ups and downs as you would expect, uh, but eventually was abandoned and fell into ruin in the eighth century with its uh, with its neighbours finally getting the better of it. The city itself was reclaimed by nature after its decline, but in recent years, archaeologists have uh, have re-reclaimed a small percentage of it from the surrounding jungle, and hundreds of thousands of tourists visit it every year, marvelling at its temples and monuments and all of its other very impressive and well-preserved structures. Uh, happily, not only is much of the city intact and in quite good condition, um, aside from the whole Buried in Jungle thing. Um, A lot of the city's historical records have actually survived through to the modern day as part of these ruins. And this means that we have quite a good understanding of the history of Palenque, its people, its, uh, its culture, and of course, its rulers. And this brings us to Pakal the Great, who is definitively the fifth longest ruling sovereign monarch in history, ruling for 68 years and 33 days. Pakal inherited the throne at the age of just 12. Uh, taking power at a young age will be a recurring theme throughout this episode, as you can imagine. And, uh, and I'll tell you this, Palenque was not in a good way when he became Achao. The, the city had recently suffered a series of devastating attacks from another powerful city-state, Kalakmul, and uh, the ruling Achao at the time, Ajan Yalmat, and, and his heir, Janab Pakal, they both died when Pakal was young. Pakal's other Sakuk uh, briefly held the position of Achao, uh, perhaps as a regent, we're not sure, but ultimately she abdicated in favour of her son in 615, making Pakal the Achao from a very young age. But I'll tell you this, it was a very bloody good thing for Palenque that Pakal was around to lead them, because he took power, I think it's fair to say, at a time that Palenque was more or less at its lowest, but throughout his reign he completely turned the fortunes of this city-state around. And he did this in many different ways across, as I say, decades and decades of leadership. Perhaps the most notable uh, impact and and legacy that Pakal had in in Palenque were his building projects, which completely rejuvenated the city. Uh, He built all sorts of stuff, not just housing and stuff like that, but ceremonial buildings, military buildings, houses of worship, temples, and most famously, the Palace of Palenque. Sort of. He didn't. He didn't quite build it. It already existed, but he renovated it to the point that it was unrecognisable from what it was before. He made it grander and more opulent than ever before. And uh, broadly speaking, this went for more or less all the other stuff that was built during his reign too. These buildings were all grand and impressive. They were richly decorated and designed to project majesty and and power. Pakal is broadly considered to be responsible for the very best of Palenque's architecture, much of which can, as I say, still be seen to this very day in quite good condition considering that it's hundreds and hundreds of years old. Pakal uh, also expanded Palenque's power throughout the region, uh, no longer content to let his city-state take a battering from all of its rival neighbours. And uh, slowly but surely, Palenque's sphere of political and military influence spread as other smaller city states were were brought under its authority. I wouldn't say that he built an empire or anything like that, but uh, he certainly got rivals like Kalakmul or Palenque's back, that is for sure. He brought with him a, a new level of stability and security. And this wasn't just about his military exploits. Um, it was also in, in, in a very real way because of his long reign. Look at it this way, right? He ruled, as I say, for 68 years. One bloke, 68 years. That's a long time. It's naturally going to bring about a time of political stability and, and and steadiness, right? You've got one bloke in charge, something that people can depend upon, set their watches to. But especially, right, this is especially true when, by comparison, things had not been all that steady beforehand. In the 68 years before Pakal's rule, right? Palenque had had six or maybe even seven Achaas, some of them ruling for only a handful of years. So this bloke well and truly steadied the ship. He put Palenque back in, into a, onto a, a pathway towards prosperity and, and, and peace and security, as I say. And when he died on the 29th of August 683, he left behind a rich and prosperous and very secure city-state that continued to flourish under his descendants until Palenque was once again sacked and plundered in 711, this time by the city-state of Tanina, uh, beginning the, uh, the eventual decline of Palenque once and for all. But all the same, Pakal was the most important, the most famous, and of course the longest lasting of all of Palenque's archaels, and he left the city a lot better off than he found it. He certainly put his 68 and a bit years on the throne to very good use. Our next long reigning monarch is Johann II, Prince of Liechtenstein, who ruled this tiny European principality for 70 years and 91 days. We've already covered the, the history of Liechtenstein in a previous episode, episode 229, the world's smallest nations get across it. Um, get across it in the same way that I got across Liechtenstein. And I, I don't mean talking about its history. I literally got across the entire country on a bike in a day, which, yes, I bring up whenever I have the opportunity. And yes, I'm, also realising that it uh, isn't that impressive when I don't bury the lead and reveal Liechtenstein as one of the world's smallest nations before talking about the whole bike ride across it thing so oops anyway still counts no one's taking away from me rode across an entire country today check me out anyway Liechtenstein is one of the smallest nations on earth it's only a little bit bigger than Denver International Airport Um, uh, and in case you haven't listened to episode 229 here is a very brief history Liechtenstein was set up back in the 18th century uh, essentially as an excuse for an Austrian noble fa- family the house of Liechtenstein to get close to the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, its princes didn't even live there for ages they didn't even visit but that didn't really matter too much in the grand scheme of things. Liechtenstein continued as part of the Holy Roman Empire then Napoleon turned up dis- dissolved the Holy Roman Empire. Um, Liechtenstein became part of the Confederation of the Rhine later the, the part of the German Confederation but since 1866 has been a completely independent realm in its own right. It hasn't been a member of any other empire or or confederation or anything else, and it has remained completely and utterly independent ever since. And um, throughout its history, while some of its princes have stuck around for, for a good long while, none of them come close to Johann II, who ruled from 1858 until his death in 1929. Johann was born on the 5th of October, 1840, and he he inherited the throne after the death of his father, Alois II, uh, just after he turned 18. Uh, Johann turned 18, that is, not Alois. Alois was uh, 62 when he died. He had 11 kids in all, and uh, he was actually the first Liechtensteiner prince to visit the realm, he ruled. And Johann too didn't actually live in Liechtenstein. He didn't seem to visit it all that much either. Um, he instead spent his time living on his family's estates, which were, which were about seven times as large as Liechtenstein itself. Found out in the, in, uh, in modern day uh, Czech Republic. All the same, Liechtenstein changed greatly throughout uh, throughout Johann's reign as prince from eighteen fifty eight onwards in in several very important ways. For instance, in eighteen sixty two. Johann issued the first constitution of Liechtenstein. Um, And then, as I say, in 1866, when the German Confederation was dissolved, Liechtenstein held on to its independence and its sovereignty rather than being absorbed into a larger nation. And all this happened despite, right, Liechtenstein deciding to completely disband and do away with its military, which was considered to be, quote, an unnecessary expense. So even with that, right, keeping his small nation independent throughout a time of great turbulence in the German-speaking world and in Europe more broadly without a military was uh, was quite an achievement. But it doesn't stop there. Johann also moved to politically realign Liechtenstein, moving away from its traditional links with the Austro-Hungarian Empire and more towards Switzerland. And this, as you can imagine had a very big impact on the course of Liechtenstein's history. Today, Liechtenstein shares a customs union with Switzerland. It uses the Swiss franc as its currency and, internationally speaking, is a strictly neutral nation, much like Switzerland. And all this came about, all of these things that define Liechtenstein as a nation today in the 21st century, all of this came about because of the political realignment undertaken very deliberately by Johann during his long reign, in 1921, Johann gave in to his citizens' demands and issued a new constitution, one that established Liechtenstein as a constitutional monarchy. He also renovated Schloss Vaduz, the uh, the castle that overlooks the Liechtenstein capital. Although again, he never actually lived there. Uh, it wasn't until the Nazis occupied the House of Liechtenstein's lands in Czechoslovakia that he uh, that the princely family finally moved to Vaduz, where they remain today. But uh, Johann wasn't around for that. Um, so anyway, yeah, look, despite never actually residing in the realm that he ruled, Johann II still had a very big impact on this small nation, helping to guide it through the chaos that was European history in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And when he finally died on the 11th of February 1929, at the age of 88, he was succeeded by his brother. Franz I, because Johann never married, never had kids, and was generally a bit of a social recluse. But all the same, he left behind a reign that spanned over seven decades, the impact of which is still very apparent in Liechtenstein to this very day. To Southeast Asia and the Kingdom of Thailand now for our next monarch, King Rama IX of Thailand, also known as King Bohimbol the Great. Now, the Thai monarchy is hmm, interesting. Its history goes back almost 800 years to the 13th century when it was established as the Sukhothai Kingdom in 1238. And it's chopped and changed over the years. It's been known by various names, most notably Siam. Um, It fought with its neighbours. It had its territory expand and contract. And in more recent years has remained the only Southeast Asian nation never to be colonised by European powers. After a thankfully peaceful revolution in 1932, Thailand gained its first constitution, transitioning from an absolute to a constitutional monarchy. And Thailand has continued to develop and modernise into the modern era, but when it comes to its monarchy specifically, Thailand really is a very long way behind the times. In Thailand, it remains a punishable criminal offence to threaten, insult, or make fun of the monarch or other senior members of the royal family. Doing so is known as laissez-majeste, and it is harshly prosecuted in thailand with people being imprisoned for something as innocuous as making fun of the fact that the former crown prince of thailand had a poodle that he had promoted to the rank of air chief marshal in the royal thai air force yes this actually happened the poodle was called fufu had a uniform and everything and people were sent to prison for making fun of this and What's worse, the investigation and the prosecution of these laissez majesty crimes is generally very opaque. Penalties are very severe, and the overwhelming majority of, of those accused of Laissez-Majesté are convicted and face stiff penalties, including imprisonment of up to 15 years. Now, this, of course, has provoked all sorts of protests in Thailand over the years, which are acts of Laissez-Majesté themselves. But there is also a significant proportion of the the Thai populace who is in support of these laissez majesty laws. So, as I say, it is a pretty uh, interesting situation with the monarchy in Thailand. And uh, look, this has been a very broad and general view of it. It's a complex cultural issue, and I don't pretend to understand it in depth, but... Honestly, I'm I'm not much of a fan of it. it. It it sounds very draconian. Um, this is the sort of thing you'd expect from a medieval kingdom going to prison for bad mouthing the king, not a monarchy in the 21st century. Anyway, there was one king who put plenty of people away for laser lousy Majesty. Naturally, it was King Rama the Ninth, the Great. He, of course, he was bound to. He ruled for over seventy years, seventy years and 126 days, beating old mate Johann of Liechtenstein by by about a month or so. And uh, sticking around that long, he was bound to have some critics, and he. Put them in a slammer just like, uh, just like you'd expect. Anyway, Bohimbol, he was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in the United States, of all places, on the 5th of December 1927. Go Pats! Um, and as far as I'm aware, this makes him the only non-Indigenous monarch in history to have been born in the United States. Um, Although I definitely lived up to the name of the podcast in researching that fact, but I honestly don't think there are any others, which is quite interesting. Anyway, he grew up all over the place Thailand, Switzerland. Um, and then, right, when his childless uncle abdicated in 1935 after that revolution I mentioned before, his older brother, Ananda Mahidol, inherited the throne as King Rama VIII. Now, sadly, this bloke didn't stick around for too long because in 1946, poor old Ananda Mahidol, or I should say poor young Ananda Mahidol, uh, he was murdered in his bed at the age of just 20. And this left Bhumibol to inherit the throne aged 19. And his uh, succession to the, uh, to the throne of Thailand began a new age of Thai political history, as this young monarch would, of course, go on to rule for over seven decades and have a huge influence on his nation as he did so. To begin with, he had little in the way of political power as a military hunter ruled thailand and his role was largely ceremonial but this changed as, t- as time went on but became more and more involved in the governance of his kingdom um and uh, his legacy is generously mixed um there was some terrific stuff he did first and foremost he encouraged the modernization of thailand particularly in areas like uh, health uh, education. Also went after poverty. He tackled poverty very seriously, um, especially in rural and agricultural regions where, once again, his modernization projects helped to benefit people who were out there working on the land, uh, increasing their productivity, encouraging sustainable farming practices. Um And throughout his reign, because of this and many other things, he remained enormously popular. He bridged internal cultural divides within Thailand. He helped to usher in a period of national unity, supported, of course, by his very long reign. It's just going to happen when you sit on the throne for long enough. However, his reign has a fair few blemishes. Uh, Military dictatorships, coups, instances of human rights abuses like the violent repression of political dissidents and even massacres... Um, all seem to have the tacit support of uh, of um, and also he amassed a ludicrous amount of personal wealth while king. Um, at his at his peak, he was worth more than thirty five billion US dollars, making him the wealthiest royal of the modern era. This guy was loaded, but it does have to be said that behimbol was a key part of Thailand's bumpy transition away from military dictatorships and towards democracy throughout the 1990s and beyond. This has not been a smooth process and Thailand even today doesn't have a great track record with human rights. But again, it's all very complicated and and the history, the politics, the culture of Thailand is, is not something we're going to be able to cover in, you know, a few short minutes like this. In any case, King Rama IX, Behimbal, he was in it for the long run, and despite all the coups and the insurgencies and the political conflicts that mired Thailand throughout the back half of the 20th century, he was at least one constant for the Thai people. He suffered a string of health issues in the 2010s, eventually falling very ill in 2016, and finally dying on the 13th of October, aged 88. Thailand had an official mourning period for the bloke that lasted an entire year, um, Regular Thai people were expected to wear black for the full 12 months. And on top of that, for a month after his death, sporting events were cancelled, nightclubs and theatres were closed. People essentially just were not allowed to enjoy themselves. TV stations even broadcast in black and white just to really get the point across. Such was the impact of King Rama IX, the longest reigning monarch in Thailand and the third longest in the world. The second longest reigning sovereign monarch in history will be a very familiar name to many listeners because according to the stats on the back end, for about 70% of you, she would have been on the money you use to buy stuff for most of your lives. Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom and Australia and Canada and New Zealand and plenty of other places besides all around the world, 32 of them at the start of her reign, but only 15 by the end. She lost about half of them, which is, you know. Quite careless of her. Anyway, I think it's fair to say that Elizabeth was, and actually still is, even after her death last year in 2022, the most famous monarch of the modern era. And most of that is due to her extremely long reign, 70 years and 214 days. Elizabeth was born on the 21st of April 1926. She was the eldest daughter of Prince Albert, um, who was the younger brother of of the heir presumptive Prince Edward. When her grandpa, King George V, died, Edward inherited as Edward VIII. But as you may know, he abdicated after a marriage scandal involving an American socialite named Wallace Simpson. And this meant that Elizabeth's father inherited instead. And he took the regnal name George. um, Very confusing. Not only his dad's name, but also his brother's name, his younger brother's name, just to really mess things up. Anyway, he's known as George VI. And when he died on the 9th of February 1952... Elizabeth became queen at the age of 25. And so began what was, honestly, the most important monarchical reign of the last century. Because during Elizabeth's time as queen, the world changed like never before, as indeed did the role of the modern monarch with it, influenced globally by Elizabeth herself. She was, as I say, just 25 when she took the throne, and uh, the first thing she did was oversee the continued decolonization of the British Empire and its transition towards the Commonwealth of Nations. In 1953, she undertook a round-the-world tour, becoming the first monarch of both Australia and Aotearoa New Zealand to visit these nations that she ruled on the other side of the world, um, and then continued to travel extensively throughout the rest of her time as queen. The role of the UK in global affairs changed enormously while Elizabeth was Queen. As its power waned, as it lost its position as a global superpower, the British Empire crumbled. Incidents like the Suez Crisis proved how politically weakened the British had become, and many nations that Elizabeth had ruled as Queen threw off the yoke of monarchy and gained their independence, which, to her credit, Elizabeth accepted relatively gracefully. She had to weather all sorts of political crises throughout her time as Queen, both domestically and internationally, the Troubles in Ireland, the 1975 Australian Constitutional Crisis, the Falklands War with Argentina, and of course, an increasingly intense and invasive interest in the lives and the affairs of the British royal family from the media. But Elizabeth remained steady and unwavering as Queen. As governments and prime ministers came and went, as as crises emerged and faded, she remained, much like Thailand's King Rama IX, a constant and dependable factor in the politics of the United Kingdom. Although she didn't have people locked up for making fun of her, so she's definitely ahead of Old Mate Behimble on, uh, on that score at least. The 1990s was plagued with scandal for the British royal family and Elizabeth's personal reputation suffered due to the way that she dealt with, for instance, the breakdown of the marriage between her son Charles, the current British monarch, and his then wife Diana. But all the same, Elizabeth retained an extremely high approval rating, not just within the UK, but throughout many of the, many of the other places that she ruled, including, of course, Australia. In fact, in 1999, when given the option to abolish the monarchy in Australia and adopt a new form of republican government... Australians voted no, and a lot of that was, was to do with the personal popularity of Elizabeth at the time. Now, I make no secret of the fact that I don't think much of monarchy in general these days, and I'm a, a strong supporter of republicanism in Australia, but even I have no hesitation in recognising Elizabeth as a monumentally important figure in recent world history. Despite being little more than a figurehead, Elizabeth shaped and, and defined The role of the modern monarch and what a 20th and 21st century constitutional monarchy actually looks like. She very rarely took a direct role in day-to-day political affairs, but all the same, Elizabeth influenced extremely important shifts to the political landscapes of both the United Kingdom and other regions around the world. She was part of the development of the Commonwealth of Nations as a successor to the British Empire. She witnessed the UK joining and then consequently departing the European Union. She helped to modernise the idea of monarchy and set the standard for what a monarchy looks like into the 21st century, keeping with the times and doing a pretty good job of attempting to keep the institution of monarchy politically relevant. And I'm saying all this as a strident critic of monarchy in general. There's no denying that Elizabeth was very good at what she did. But after over 70 years as queen, Elizabeth's reign finally came to an end quite recently on the 8th of September, 2022, when she died at the age of 96. But she remains the longest serving female head of state in history and the second longest reigning sovereign monarch overall. And regardless of what the future holds for the British monarchy and its role throughout the world, Elizabeth II will be remembered alongside other colossally important and famous British monarchs like Victoria, Henry VIII, and of course her namesake, Elizabeth I. And she ruled longer than any of them. The longest reigning sovereign monarch in history, with a rule that lasted 72 years and 110 days, is the Sun King, Louis XIV of France. And just as Elizabeth II was a huge figure in defining the role of the 20th and 21st century monarch, Louis XIV was the archetypical absolute monarch of the 17th and 18th centuries. Today, most of the highest-profile monarchies around the world are constitutional monarchies, where the power or lack of power of the ruling monarch is set up very clearly through a constitution. In contrast, Louis XIV was an absolute monarch, or more accurately, he was THE absolute monarch, and an archetypical example, as I say, of what this form of government looks like. Louis was born on the 5th of September, 1638, and became king at the age of just four years old, when his dad, Louis XIII, died in 1643. Louis XIII, whose worsening illnesses had uh, caused him to set up a regency council in, in preparation for the death that he knew was coming, he died at the age of 41, and so this regency council took over the governance of the Kingdom of France. Louis XIV came of age in uh, 1651, and after 10 years of ruling in conjunction with ministers and councillors and, and, and advisers, in 1661 he announced that he would instead rule his kingdom personally. And this brought in a new age of centralised, absolutist rule across France, as Louis XIV had total political control of his government and his realm. And look, to be honest, he did a pretty good bloody job of things, I have to admit. Domestically, Louis undertook a range of economic and financial reforms to fill France's empty coffers, um, and then spent money as quickly as he raised it. But... While the royal treasury remained perilously low throughout his entire entire reign, France as a realm grew much more prosperous thanks to his reforms. He also undertook legal reforms too. He eliminated uh, the remaining vestiges of feudalism throughout France and instituted a new unified code of laws for French subjects. And needless to say, he fully entrenched his authority as an absolute monarch with an Iron grip on power throughout more or less his entire reign. French nobles, the aristocracy, the French clergymen, even the Pope himself—no one had more sway in French politics than the Sun King. Louis was uh, was also a great patron of culture and the arts, and personally supported artists and composers and, and musicians and writers and philosophers and all sorts of other creative types. He built uh, theatres and, and performance houses for them, as well as developing other hugely culturally important buildings like, for instance, the Palace of Versailles. But the importance of Louis' reign wasn't just limited to France domestically, however, as uh, Louis XIV had a massive impact on the politics and the history of Europe more broadly. Um. Firstly, uh, I mentioned before that he liked to spend money, and principally, it's fair to say, he liked to spend this money on war. Louis fought a great many wars, most famously the War of the Spanish Succession, which saw a Frenchman end up on the Spanish throne. But there was also the War of Devolution, the Franco-Dutch War, the Nine Years' War. These wars were all extremely expensive um, and didn't necessarily result in huge territorial gains for France, but nonetheless meant that France became one of the pre eminent military powers in europe and on top of this the political and military power that louis gained combined with the cultural prestige that france had gained while he was king and had very important consequences for european history because as i say france wasn't just admired for its political power and military successes its cultural influence was absolutely enormous today we can very plainly see the, the spread and the influence of, of, of the American cultural hegemony throughout the Western world. Um, but back then, it was the French. France was seen as powerful and, and sophisticated, and other European cultures began to emulate and imitate the French. European courts across the entire continent began to adopt French as the language of the aristocratic elite, and much as today, English is the international lingua franca. French became the language of international European diplomacy under the rule of Louis XIV. Further, his international influence was very clearly evidenced with the rise of other absolutist monarchs like Peter the Great of Russia or Frederick the Great of Prussia, episode one. Don't bother getting across it, it's a bit of a stinker. The early episodes really are a bit cooked to be honest. There's there's still that mistake in episode one that I, that I haven't gone back and fixed. I, I really don't know if I should. Anyway, yes, Louis set the standard for the absolute monarch of the 18th century. And even as the Enlightenment took hold in Europe, the ideas of absolutism and the divine right of kings lingered because of how deeply entrenched they were as a result of how long this bloke was in charge for. Louis's extremely long reign cemented certain political ideals that would go on to shape the course of European and and world history. While France would, of course, undergo a huge revolution that would also change the entire world in less than a century after his death, the reign of Louis XIV can be accurately said to have laid much of the groundwork for the modern state of France. But then again, he also had a lot to do with why the revolution happened in the first place and in the end him failing to modernize his realm with the changing times directly led to the french revolution everything that came out of it so his legacy is a deep and very complicated one as you would expect for someone who ruled for as long as he did louis the 14th finally died on the 1st of september 1715 age 76 and the french crown passed to his great grandson louis the 15th louis the 14th outlived both his son and And his grandson. And Louis XV went on to have a very long reign as well, ruling for just shy of 59 years, which is quite a long time, Uh, although his successor Louis XVI didn't fare quite as well. His rule of 18 years was brought to an end by the chippity chop of the guillotine during the French Revolution. And with the French monarchy abolished, Louis XIV, the Sun King, will remain the longest reigning king of France. Um, and to be honest, his position as the longest reigning sovereign monarch doesn't seem to be under threat either. The current longest reigning monarch is Hassan al the Sultan of Brunei, who has been in charge for 56 years so he's still got a very long way to go to catch up with Louis XIV, and as he's currently 77, he would have to live to at least 93 to claim the top spot. So, Louis XIV's position on top of this list looks pretty secure, I would say. The The world's current long-reigning monarchs, people like Sultan Hassanal or Queen Marguerite II of Denmark or King Karl XVI Gustav of Sweden... They are really going to have to get into some proper clean living to break the Sun King's record. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. Those are the five longest reigns from throughout history. And uh, as I say, this is not a list that this is not an episode that I'm probably going to have to come back to and uh, and change anytime soon we'll keep an eye on the situation uh in uh, in brunei but uh yeah not not anticipating any any short-term changes to this list so reasonably definitive i'm glad that we got there in the end anyway i want to thank you for listening to this uh, the episode of this tin pot history podcast um and uh, i want to thank all the people who've been getting in touch if you want to join their exalted ranks half there's a contact form there you can send in an email uh with some feedback or a topic suggestion or anything else that's on your mind Um, One more thank you to all the people who have been getting in touch uh, with advice and ideas when it comes to book publishing. I can tell you now that I have uh, meetings scheduled, um, but also I've been told that it takes a really long time to publish a book. So I'm a very impatient person. I will try to hurry that process along. Um, I don't know if it will happen next year. That's certainly my aim. But uh, assuming these conversations go well and assuming I can find a way forward... Um, there will be half-ass history literature for you to enjoy. Hopefully, hopefully, within the next twelve months. Again, I don't have a huge amount of industry knowledge. Maybe that's just laughably too soon. I don't know, but we will see. Anyway, uh, thank you to all for all the messages of support I've received, and uh, and also the people who seem very excited to to read a silly book that I've uh, I've written. So we'll see how it goes. Um, but uh, more news as it comes to hand uh, as, as as things develop. But uh, I certainly appreciate people getting in touch. Um, if you want to support the show, there are a couple of ways you can do it. T Public is is one way. You can jump on the merch store. The link is on the website half You can buy yourself a a mug or a shirt or whatever you like. But if you want to uh, you want to subscribe to the the show's Patreon, you'll gain access to all sorts of stuff, starting of course with ad free listening available to every tier, uh, as well as uncut episodes, show notes, early access, um, and exclusive patron only merch. Um, I'm thinking that the Patreon may uh may be updated in in the coming weeks and months i've got some ideas um to to further incentivize uh people to to join but now's a good as, as good a time as ever um to get stuck in if you feel like it it's uh, it's certainly very much appreciated so thank you to all the exalted patrons who are who are supporting me week in and week out and thank you to the uh to the exalted listeners too for tuning in every week especially any new listeners who have come along welcome by all means welcome great to have you hope you'll stick around lots uh, lots and lots of episodes to get through but as I say, the early ones, eh, they're kind of stinkers. I'd start at like I don't know episode like fifty onwards, forty. That's when that's when things start sort of hitting their stride. So maybe start there if you want to go back, or just I don't know, do scroll randomly through your Spotify list and just see where you end up. We'll see. Anyway, thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Half First History. More uh, more nonsense coming your way next week, of course. Looking forward to your company then. But until then, leaving you with a very excellent question that comes from reddit we've been talking about monarchs we've been talking about kings and queens here and this one comes to this question comes to us from redditor ivan osokin who asks when a king or queen farts which of the noble gases do they emit